0: I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Jeremiah. It has been a couple weeks now since we were in Jeremiah, but if you can remember our last couple of sermons in this series, we've been focusing on some big themes in the book of Jeremiah. For example, our our last two sermons in this series were about the theme of the king, whereas we Titled those sermons, we looked at the rise and return of the king. Right before that, we did two sermons on another big theme, the theme that judgment is coming, or specifically in Jeremiah's day, it was a message that Babylon was coming. And my plan today is to introduce us to a third major theme in Jeremiah, and that is the theme of idolatry, or as it says on the PowerPoint, the theme of idolatry as spiritual Adultery. So this will be our focus for the next two Sundays, and this theme is basically everywhere in the book of Jeremiah. So when I think back uh, for a minute to those two studies that we did about judgment, or about how Babylon, this other nation, was coming to judge, at the end of those two sermons, I, I mentioned that there were some questions that I had left unanswered. One of those questions that we didn't answer at that time was the basic question of why why is god's fierce judgment falling on his own people we certainly saw hints about why but that wasn't our focus in those sermons instead we were focused on things like the certainty of that judgment on how devastating it was going to be and on how there was only one way to escape The coming judgment. But today I want to focus specifically on the why question. Why does God's judgment fall in the book of Jeremiah? And you could ask that about why does God judge anybody? And I want to give us a short answer to this, okay, up front. In short, this is Jeremiah's answer. You don't have to look far into the book to find it, okay? The short answer is that God's judgment falls primarily because of what people do to God. Now, to be sure, God also cares deeply about how people treat or mistreat other people. But judgment falls first in the Bible and in Jeremiah specifically because of what people do to God. And that's what I want us to see. I want to see that the foundational sin that leads to God's fierce judgment is the sin of idolatry. Okay, and to see this, you don't have to look far in Jeremiah. You can look at the first chapter. Okay? Look at Jeremiah chapter 1. And just think, if you, I want, to, I want you to see if you can remember this scene. Remember, God points out a couple different things to Jeremiah in the first chapter. You have his call right at the beginning. And then God tells him, what do you see? And what do you see? Remember what he saw? Okay, look at Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 13. It says, the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. And we've talked about that a good bit already. Do you remember what that meant? Jeremiah sees this boiling pot tipping over toward him from the north to the south. What did it mean? Verse 14 gives the explanation. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north, disaster will be let loose on all the inhabitants of Israel, of the land. Early on in Jeremiah's life, He is told by God that judgment is definitely coming in his day. Out of the north, disaster will be let loose on all the people. But our key question today is why? Why would God do that to his own people? And God's short answer is in verse 16. So look at verse 16. God says, And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil. In forsaking me, they have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. And then the text moves on. That is the short answer in Jeremiah to why God's going to do what he's going to do. Why does God judge Israel or anyone else? God's judgment falls primarily because of what people do to God. And this, of course, fits with what we might know about other parts of the Bible. I can think of like the Ten Commandments as a good example of this. What are the first couple commands in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20? We find things like first, you shall have no other gods before me. Second command, you shall not make for yourself a carved image and you shall not bow down to them or serve them. God is creator and king. And because of that, God deserves and demands total allegiance from all people. So it shouldn't be surprising that in the opening words of Jeremiah, God explains his judgment like this. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their evil in forsaking me. They have made idols. Now what happens in the rest of the book, I think, as you, look, as you read through this really long book, what happens in the rest of the book is that that short answer in chapter 1 is explained and developed and illustrated throughout the next 51 chapters. And today we're not going to look at the whole book on this. Instead, I want to get into the topic by looking at one of Jeremiah's longest sermons on a single topic, okay? and it's on the topic of idolatry, and I think it's actually the first sermon he ever preached. Probably a young man, maybe a late teenager, early 20s, never having preached I don't think anybody would have expected this. And he gets up and he preaches this message from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1, all the way into at least chapter 3, maybe even into chapter 4. So look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1. Have your Bibles open and wants to hear the word of the Lord. And we're going to walk right through what he preaches. Jeremiah 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. Now, I don't think he's ever done that before at this point. God has spoken to him in chapter 1 a couple times. But now God says, go out there and proclaim this in the hearing of Jerusalem. What does what does, he want him, what does God want him to say? And notice how Jeremiah, will, when he speaks... He speaks like God, like he says, I, me, my, but he's not talking about himself when he's delivering the word of the Lord. Okay, so look at this, Jeremiah chapter two, verse two, again, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. In a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, and all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came on them, declares the Lord. So the sermon begins by looking back. Looking back to what exactly? Back to the early days, when God first redeemed his people. And how is Israel pictured? In those early days. Israel is pictured as a bride. And what does God say that he remembers about those days? I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. God remembers their first love. And if we're thinking of the marriage picture, this was like the honeymoon phase, if you will. Israel loved God. God loved Israel. Israel was holy to the Lord. And what does verse 3 say? Anyone who messed with Israel, God brought disaster on them. God was a loving, faithful, protecting, and jealous, in a good way, husband to his bride. Now the sermon goes on, verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me? That they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land, made my heritage an abomination. And the priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. That is the story of Israel in the Old Testament. And can you hear how grieved God is over this. I mean, if you keep the picture of marriage in our minds, God asks questions like you might hear from an abandoned spouse. What wrong did you find in me? There is a sense of betrayal that runs through the first part of this sermon. It's from the priests to the kings or shepherds, all the way to the prophets. They've all left him behind. And no one even thought to ask, where is the Lord who did all this for us? The sermon goes on, verse 9. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross over to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kadar and examine with care, and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they're not God's? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Do you see what God is getting at in those verses? God is challenging the people to travel to distant places and just to see if anything like this has ever happened before. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they're not gods? I mean, this is just something you don't find, even though their gods are dead. But what is God's point? but my people have exchanged their glory for that which does not profit. And this leads into perhaps the two most well-known verses of this sermon from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is the foundation or fundamental sin of Israel throughout the Old Testament. God describes it here as two evils one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and two, They've dug out cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold any water. And that's what idolatry is all about in the Bible. It is about forsaking God, the one true source of joy, and chasing joy in something else, something that will always leave you empty. Now, if you're not familiar with what a cistern is, it's something like a storage tank that, that they would dig into the solid rock that was, like, far under the ground. Many of these can still be seen today in Palestine, and they would be used to store different things, but especially water, in the hope that, because of the climate, in the hope that when it rained, it would store up the rain so that when it didn't rain, like in the dry season, <clears throat> you'd be able to make it through the dry season. And so the illustration is simple enough. But I, I read something this week uh, that I thought described this really well And so I want to share some of the gist of what uh, a guy named Christopher Wright said in his commentary He said imagine a farmer especially in this time Fortunate enough to have an actual spring of water on his own property okay, that would have been extremely rare uh, At this time uh, in a land that was almost entirely dependent on rainfall okay, So this would mean if you had that on your property you would never need to worry about what everyone else is always worrying about. Right? Uh, about how to have water for your crops or for your family year after year, harvest after harvest. Okay, so then can you even imagine someone stupid enough, he says, to willingly abandon such a priceless asset? And then, and then for what? Like what would be the alternative? Okay. Well, imagine the same farmer hacking away for years in the backbreaking work of carving out a big underground tank in the solid rock beneath the soil because that's how they did it. And you would be doing that, just hoping that you'd be able to store up enough rainwater to get through the dry season. And by the way, even if that worked, the water would often be stale, infested with bugs and other stuff. But then, the point of this illustration is then after all of the sweat, all of the effort, you end up finding when it actually does rain that the rock wall is cracked. And the water just drains away. All the effort was in vain. And you see all your hopes just dribbling away. Okay. What, what do you think about it? Can, can you even imagine someone doing that, being so foolish that they would do something like that? Why would anyone ever do anything like that? That's the point of the illustration. It makes no sense. It's beyond dumb. And yet, and yet, I think we know too well that we have done that very thing time and time again where we have turned our backs on God, the fountain of living waters, and we've broken our backs digging, trying to find water somewhere else. And in the end, every single time, the source that we think will satisfy us Turns out to be just one more broken cistern. And may God have mercy on us. This is perhaps the climax of that of this sermon in in Jeremiah's preaching, but but it's not the end. And so I want to pick up bits and pieces from the end of it to try to help fill out what he says. So so let's skip down to verse eighteen. It says and now, what do you gain? Just. 218. Now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or, or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? And I want us to read that because I just want to point out that idolatry, <coughs> thinking how Jeremiah talks about it, can take different forms. For the most part, Israel turned from God to make and worship literal idols of wood and stone. But one of the other things that they often did in Jeremiah's day was that they would put their hope or their trust in other nations to deliver them from what they could see coming. Okay. So that's what verse 18 is about. What do you gain by going to Egypt or by going to Samaria or, or to Assyria? At this time, especially when judgment was coming and it was coming from the hand of Babylon, instead of turning to the Lord, what would they do? They would turn to anyone else that they thought could deliver them, to anyone that could grant them some measure of security. And I would say that all of that, in Jeremiah's picture, fits under the umbrella of idolatry, of forsaking the fountain of living waters for a bunch of broken cisterns. Now, now at this point, the descriptions of how sick idolatry is get very vivid, okay. So I'm not going uh, I'm, to, I'm just going to basically read these and let the text speak for itself because uh, this is some pretty, pretty rough stuff, okay. But, but again, imagine this, these words coming from the mouth of a very young man who has seemingly never preached before. But also, as hard as it is to listen to this, remember, this is actually the word of the Lord. This is God's own description of what he sees when we give our love to other gods. So let's pick up in verse 20. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. But you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill, And under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. And by the way, Jeremiah talks a lot about the hills and trees, like he does here. He's talking about the places where people would go to worship other gods. On those high hills and under those green trees, they would do horrible, horrible things. Now drop down to verse 23. (laughs) How can you say, I am not unclean, I have not gone after the baals"? Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. Now skip down to verse 32, where the marriage picture comes back again. Verse 32, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. And on and on it goes <clears throat> to at least Jeremiah 3, verse 5. But really the first message on idolatry continues in one way or another all the way into the fourth chapter of the book. This is some very heavy stuff to say the least. So there can be no doubt that God takes idolatry very seriously and incredibly personally. And yet, we've really only scratched the surface of what God says in just one book about idolatry. And so we're going to look at more of it throughout the next week or so. But we've we've already seen enough today to draw a few significant conclusions about idolatry and how it's presented throughout the book. So I want to, in three sentences, I want to summarize what we've seen about idolatry. And this is borne out throughout the rest of the book. Okay, one, idolatry is the first and greatest cause of the judgment of God. Again, God cares a lot about what we do to each other. But judgment falls first because of what people do to God. The foundational sin of human beings that leads to God's fierce judgment is the sin of idolatry. God is the creator of every human being, He is the king of the nations. And so God deserves and demands total allegiance from all people. And so in Jeremiah, and when you look throughout the story of the Bible, when we refuse to honor God as God, it is treason. Idolatry is not an oopsie in the Bible. It is always heinous rebellion against God. It is the first and greatest cause of the judgment of God. Second, idolatry is exchanging God for emptiness. Throughout Jeremiah, idolatry is presented as forsaking God or as forgetting God. So we think back. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, or that last verse. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. But idolatry is more than forsaking or forgetting God. It is also exchanging God for something else. It involves exchanging God for emptiness, vanity, for nothing. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've dug out cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold any water. Idolatry is always exchanging God for something else, that leaves you empty. Third, idolatry throughout Jeremiah is spiritual adultery. God is pictured, not just in these opening verses, but throughout the book of Jeremiah as the faithful husband of his people who has covenanted himself to his people, who loves them and wants to protect them and who is jealous for them in a good way but God's people are pictured throughout the book as an unfaithful bride. They are a covenant-breaking people running here and there like wild animals just trying to find something to satisfy them. That picture helps us to see why God takes idolatry so seriously. It helps us to see and feel the jealousy of God for the love of his bride, And I think when we bring it into our own lives, it ought to show us just how bad it is when we, even as blood-bought people of God, begin to give our love or our trust or our loyalty to another. Idolatry throughout Jeremiah is spiritual adultery. Now, After such a sobering message, I I think we need to ask a question, even though I think most people in Jeremiah's day didn't care to ask this question. They should have. They should have asked it. And that is the question, is there any hope? Is there any way back from idolatry? And to start with, I want to look at, I think, what is the answer to that in the sermon. And that would be in Jeremiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. So look at Jeremiah 3, verse 12. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice. So what's the answer? Is there any way back from idolatry? And and I think the sermon would say any hope of restoration begins with real humble repentance in jeremiah's day and throughout the old testament there was a lot of false repentance where people would just say sad sounding words when there was a bunch of trouble coming but the way back to god the path to hope always comes through true repentance, true acknowledgement and ownership of guilt that we have rebelled and given our hearts to countless other gods. But I also want to point back to something else in the sermon that I think is interesting because Jeremiah also talks about what will not take away guilt. And this is in a a verse that I skipped over in Jeremiah chapter 2. I'm going to look back at chapter 2 Verse 22, and I want you to think about this. <clears throat> Look at what God says in 2.22. Though you wash yourself with lie, which I think is like some detergent kind of thing. Though you wash yourself with lie and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. Now what's the point of that? Washing yourself with whatever you've got is not enough. You can do all that you can do. You can scrub with as much soap as you've got. But the stain of your guilt runs deep. And it cannot be taken away, no matter what you use. Now, what's, okay, so we think about that. That raises the question then, what what can actually take away are guilty stains, stains that run deep. Now, in Jeremiah's day, what would have been a reasonable answer to that? So you, you can scrub and wash all you want and it, it won't remove your guilty stains. And so then someone asks, well, what would? What would have been one reasonable answer? You might have said, sacrifices. <laughs> that would be what could we would offer the sacrifices and i think it's interesting that as you read jeremiah that many of the very same people who were regularly worshiping other gods under every tree and on every hill they still would go to the temple and offer sacrifices now one of the things that that shows is how easy it is to go through the motions of worship even when your heart is far from the Lord. But, but, but I wonder if we could ask those people why they did that. Like, why, did, why do you continue to offer sacrifices in the temple to the Lord when you spend your whole week committing spiritual adultery? Like, why, why do you do that? I wonder if many did that, at least in part, because they hoped that God would keep sparing them as long as they kept offering the sacrifices, in spite of the other stuff that they were doing. After all, wasn't it God's plan to cleanse their guilty stains through the blood of those innocent sacrifices? As as terrible as it was in Israel, sacrifice was ingrained in their mind, and it was in a lot of other religions as well, but especially in Israel, this was part of their whole framework of worship. And so they continued to do it, even though their hearts were far from the Lord. Now, what does Jeremiah have to say about those sacrifices and whether they could take away those guilty stains? I wanna, we don't have time to go into great detail on this, but I, I did want to look at one more verse in another sermon in Jeremiah on idolatry, where he talks about this. And so look at chapter 11. And we'll just look at one verse. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 15. And listen to the questions God asks. He says, What right has my beloved in my house when she has done so many vile deeds? Can even... Sacrificial flesh avert your doom. Now, what is the answer to that in Jeremiah? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? The answer in Jeremiah is no. Why not? The reason is that no sacrifice on its own could take away guilty stains. Those sacrifices needed to be offered in faith by people who were truly repentant for them to accomplish anything. And the way that the people of this day were viewing the sacrifices is they they weren't repentant. They kept doing everything during the week, but they would still offer the sacrifices. And so he says, can, can that avert the disaster? No, that would be his answer. Sacrifices alone, like on their own, can never cleanse guilty stains. But then I want to step back from that and think about that question in light of the whole Bible as well. Can any sacrifice truly wash away our guilty stains? What's the answer to that? I want to draw things to a close today by making two connections between Jeremiah and one of my favorite New Testament letters, Paul's letter to the Romans. And I just want to point out a couple things. One, Paul says the same stuff about God's wrath and idolatry that Jeremiah preached. If you ask Paul, why does God pour out his wrath on people? What is Paul's first answer to that? You just listen to this, Romans 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor God as God. But they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a variety of things. Just like in Jeremiah, idolatry is the first and greatest cause of the wrath of God. And just like in Jeremiah, idolatry is exchanging God for emptiness. Okay, But the second connection I want to make is that Paul is even clearer than Jeremiah was about how God can take away our guilty stains. Okay, so we think of Jeremiah's question again. Is there any sacrificial flesh that can avert our doom? Okay, the answer in that context in Jeremiah, especially because of how they're offering them, is no. But in the bigger picture of the Bible, is there any sacrifice, any flesh that could be offered that would take away our guilty stains? And what's Paul's answer to that? Paul's answer to that would be, there's one sacrifice for sin. There's only one person's flesh that can bear our guilt. And on that, I'll just share one verse from Romans, chapter 8, verse 3. Listen to this and take heart. Paul says, God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of our sinful flesh and sending him as a sin offering, God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. If you've been convicted today of how many times you have forsaken the fountain of living waters in search of something else that could satisfy, of how many cisterns you've dug that have left you empty. Take heart. No matter what you've done or how many times you've done it, if you'll look again in true repentance to this single sacrifice, the body and blood of the Lord. You can go home washed clean. Let's pray. Father, would you both convict us of where our hearts have been wandering from you? And would you please encourage us and cause us to look again to the body and blood of our Lord through which we find full cleansing from our guilty stains. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.